Welcome to the Coast Down Podcast, presented by Pratt Miller. Pratt Miller, transforming what's possible. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Coast Down Podcast. It is a early Tuesday morning. It's a Tuesday, June 27th. We are 8.15 in the morning, coming at you from our Huntersville studios. Um, hope everyone had a great weekend. Uh, we we did another stream this past weekend. I'll touch on that a little bit later on. Um, again, it was a I think it was a really good success. Uh, and and after coming off of a twenty four hour stream for the Lamar race, uh, six hours at Watkins Glen was a was a walk in the park <laughs> from a stamina standpoint. Um, but uh, uh, somewhat quiet this weekend in the motorsports world, at least um, IndyCar and Formula One were off. Uh, so we had the NASCAR uh, Cup race at the um, Nashville Super Speedway, and then the IMSA race was the um, Salins six hours at the Glen. So starting off with NASCAR, um, this was a night race on Sunday, which was interesting. I think it started... Uh, six o'clock local time, seven o'clock Eastern time. And um, uh, right off the bat, it was well attended. Uh, it looked like a near sellout. I'm, I'm not sure what the capacity is for that um, that track, but uh, the front stretch looked packed. And I think there was, there was some stands uh, in turns one and two. Uh, I think there was a couple bare spots, but other than that, I would I would call it a, a sellout because you got to also factor in all the folks camping outside and inside the track. So um, really, really well received race from the fans uh, from a visual standpoint. Um, uh, watching the race, it looked like a pretty strategic race. There was not a lot of beating and banging and um, like yucky racing uh it was very it looked very strategic there was a lot of um thought thoughtful car placements and um there was a handful of restarts where there were they were three wide almost three rows back for more than a couple laps um this track is concrete the dimensions of the track uh it's a little over miles 1.3 miles and um, the one thing that stood out to me, I don't know if this is just me or not, but the race pace, the overall race pace looked slow. And um, I, I know there's been comments in the media coming from drivers um, that they're saying that these cars are indeed slower. Um, something that is contributing to that um, decrease in speed is some tracks the drivers are downshifting one two sometimes even three gears and when you are downshifting even though it's a very slight blip you are breaking the throttle and technically you are making the car slower so when you start adding that up over time the race lengths get longer and um but to me this race just seemed slower so um one thing that is going to help add to that which i think i found my answer is that the banking in um the corners is 14 degrees which isn't a ton and you know they say that the name of the track is the nashville super speedway and i am not exactly sure how they classify super speedway uh you know it was like Super speedways, I think we're in an era like Darlington technically was like one of the first super speedways. I think of Daytona and Talladega as a super speedway. 
with the overall length and the the um, radical banking in the turns. To me, that's a super speedway. But 14 degrees, just to give people an idea of what 14 degrees is, um, uh, the turns in at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which sometimes on television hardly looks like any banking. So those banking that banking degree is 9.2 degrees, and uh, Nashville is 14 degrees. So it's banked more than Indy, but not much more. And I think that plays a lot into the race pace. Um, the watching the in-car, there was heavy braking. I thought I saw Kyle Bush downshift twice. Um, so uh, it just it it just looks slower to me. Some of the in-car cameras, the in-car telemetry. I th I think I saw 175 as the top speed, and they just fluttered around there, and then backed right off. So. I don't know if it's just me it's just me but it, it seemed slower but i think the benefit to that is that these guys have more time to think not much more but they have more time to think and they have more time to be thoughtful in where they place their cars how they race cars how they uh, take the air off spoilers um, how they strategically set up a pass um, so um, when you slow the cars down, I think those are some of the benefits that come back into play. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm somewhat old school. I mean, obviously, I would love to see both. I would love to see all of the strategic car placement and passing all this stuff at a high rate of speed. But um, uh, I, I guess it was a, from a purist standpoint, it was it was a good race. Uh, so the the one thing that happened, I think it was maybe over past halfway. There was a restart. Um, there was some folks checking up. Uh, some uh, Blaney checked up a little much. Kyle Busch got into the back of him, and they both got punted into the grass. And they had just started the cross finish line, so they were under power, but then immediately backed off the throttle, got loose, uh, bumped each other, went into the grass, slid across the grass. Kyle Busch was able to... Um, overcorrect and then correct and then get back on the track so he didn't really sustain much damage to his car blaney was sliding sideways through the grass which is still natural grass and then he came across um, basically the exit of pit road at the top end of pit road and you can see on the replay that all of his wheels were turning when he hit the pavement because i believe he was trying to snap the car back around um, and get some traction back going and hopefully avoid the wall, which was coming at a pretty decent clip. Um, you know, I he, he definitely did not hit the wall going at some obscene speed. He was probably going, if I had to guess, maybe 75, 80 miles an hour, which is still pretty hard. But um, he hit pretty much head-on the inner wall at the top end of pit road which does not have a safer barrier and uh, I, after been doing this for many years and being around of uh, being around a lot of racing people management mechanics drivers they all say the same thing a car a race car will always find the weakest part of the track always 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 and um, it's just a matter of time. And I think this is yet another example of a car finding a place on the track that is weak 
weak meaning not safe in this in this instant uh, instance. Uh, you know, you remember back to uh, Kyle Busch at Daytona when he had that long slide when he broke his legs. That car sniffed out where that brake was in the wall right off the bat. Um, I remember uh, a ways back, Jeff Gordon, he got in a really hard hit at Vegas. And that was one of those where the, you know, the, the wall is broken so the safety truck can come out. And Jeff Gordon hit it right at the right angle and destroyed his car. And, and I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure he got a concussion up, uh, after that. Um, it, it's, it's still amazing that, you know, if you're at a, if you're at a road course like road America or Lamal, you know, you have these huge long tracks, um, you know, it's still kind of inexcusable to have a weak spot on the racetrack, but when you have an oval, that's barely a mile long and you don't have safer barriers on the outside and inside, that seems to me a little bit questionable. And I, I think from, a sanctioning body standpoint, their first and foremost thing that they need to do when they sign those sanctioning agreements is look at the facility and and are they capable of holding a race with the proper safety equipment? I'm almost positive that's like the first thing that they look at and ask when they when they either look at new racetracks or they're renewing current racetracks is what does the safety situation look like? The the wall was the, the wall that Blaney hit was cement. It did not move an inch and it collapsed basically the whole front of his car. And, um, they, they went to helicopter shot, but they zoomed in. I don't know if it was helicopter. Or they just went to a higher shot, but they did zoom in a little bit and it took him a while to drop his window net. Now the safety crew that rolled up on there, um, I think the person that got out of the back of the truck was eyeballing Blaney. And I believe they saw him uh, moving his helmet. They were not totally panicked because at that point when they got out of the truck, his window net was still up, which, um, you know, that's the, the universal sign for either I'm fine or I need help. If that window nut net stays up, uh, that is panic mode. And that is get to that car first mode from a triage standpoint with the safety folks. Um, but, uh, the drivers are trained once they get in an accident and their car is disabled, they take quick stock of themselves. If they're okay, they drop that net. So the safety workers know that, um, they are, they're relatively okay. So he, he got out of his car after a little while. Um, you know, he went through the safety protocol. I'm sure they took him through concussion protocol and, uh, I didn't see the interview live. Uh, but they put him outside of the medical center once he was cleared. And I saw some of the video of the interviews afterwards. And there's a reporter scrum and there is an NBC reporter. I believe it was Marty was down there and he asked him and, and Blaney gave a NBC flavored answer. Like, you know, it was a hard hit. I'm okay. I don't know what happened, you know, kind of at a very, very top level and kept it clean. Uh, but then the majority of the reporters that are also there looking for comment and asking him questions, they do not have to uh, abide by uh, many rules when it comes to colorful language. And Blaney uh, was visibly um, agitated, as I think he should be, saying that it was a little hard to think that we're still hitting a concrete wall without a safer barrier. And he said he couldn't believe it didn't have one. And he said, shit, I'd pay for it myself. It was only 30 feet long. And, you know, even though it was a short piece, uh, it was, it still was a, was a cement wall, totally destroyed his car. 
Um, he said he had to take a breath uh, before he got out of the car. Um, he, I don't think they had an in-car camera, which those have been very interesting. Um, the in-car cameras, uh, when there was the crash at Charlotte this season, when, um, I forget who's, who hooked them, but when Danny Hamlin went head on into the wall at Charlotte, he had an in-car camera and I backed that up on my DVR and slowed it down. And these crashes in these cars are so violent. Um, Denny Hamlin looked like he almost came out of his seat. Uh, his head almost hit his wheel. So shout out to NBC because when getting back to the Blaney thing at Nashville, um, they went to a, a animated 3D model and they have, they have had the best explanations when it comes to these 3D models for many years. So they have the car sitting there and they explode uh, the back section and kind of take it apart so you can see what's going on and how the car is built. And then um, one of the announcers was um, very um, pointed and very clean and how he was explaining it and showing the braces that uh, the car originally came with, that rear clip uh, came with some very rigid braces and they were explaining that uh, under this this next generation rear clip after these really hard impacts at relatively slow speeds that were causing concussions they showed through animation how they were softening up quote unquote softening up the impact zones in the rear part of the car by re uh, replacing some struts with uh, similar struts but with thinner uh, steel walls so when the car backs into or, you know, when the car gets in an accident, it wants to crumple more and absorb that energy. Because still, um, I would even say still to this point, even though they've, they've done these upgrades, the car still looks like in it from the sounds of it is it's also still very rigid. So when you have a rigid car and it's hitting something hard and there's nothing absorbing that impact, that shock will go right through the driver's body. And in the past, when these teams would make their own cars uh, from scratch uh, and the, the way they built them, they were all basically one piece uh, from a chassis standpoint. And they were the, just the way they were built, they were inherently designed to absorb and smush and crush and absorb that energy. Um, the the negative part is the financial side so if you get into a wreck you usually have to you know chunk the car or cut half the car apart and rebuild it so there's a lot of skilled labor involved of of cutting and rebuilding cars every week and the car that we have today the theory is if you get an accident and instead of rebuilding a car you you take off either that front clip or the rear clip and and bolt a new one on um, that's that's really how this thing is designed and it's designed with all off the shelf parts. So no teams can build their own anything at this point and they have to buy inventory from approved vendors and stick those pieces on the car and off they go. Um, there are positive and, and positives and negatives to both scenario, but as of right now, that's what this car is and that's what the teams have to deal with. Um, you know, and the other thing getting back to, uh, the car and the impact of this car, I have noticed almost as a switch is being flicked that I, I have not heard any drivers come out in a public forum 
and rip this car apart negatively. And I would be willing to bet that there was a come to Jesus with the drivers in NASCAR. And I would, I have no insider information on this, but I would imagine the talk is NASCAR to the drivers. Hey, we're trying to fix it. Cut us a break. Stop, stop saying this car is unsafe. Um, off the track uh, news uh, regarding NASCAR um, for the past few days. I thought this was pretty interesting. So uh, a couple months ago, it was rumored that the new NASCAR TV deal, they would have a handshake agreement uh, by about the 4th of July weekend, which is the weekend coming up. Um, as of last night, uh, it seems that they're still headed down a good path, but they're probably going to back that timeline up a couple months. And the reason for that is... NASCAR was looking to sell possibly the summer races to a streaming partner. And so um, Fox would have the first half of the season. NBC would have the second half of the season. And then in the middle uh, for the summer races, you know, whether that's four, six, eight races, however you want to count it or however they're going to count it, those races would be sold to a streaming platform. And I think Amazon was, was the heavy rumor there. Apparently, those talks are taking longer than um, originally thought. So that is delaying the process of getting closer to getting a deal done. Um, this is coming from the Sports Business Journal. Uh, Adam Stern, uh, he is a writer for them, and he has his finger on the pulse with uh, all the stuff that is going on within um, motorsports from a business standpoint. So he's a, a really reliable source. One thing that was mentioned in there is that they still didn't have some sort of an agreement on the price for what NBC and Fox was going to pay going into the next um, TV deal period. Um, I think right now um, between NBC and Fox, the combined number is like $910, $20 million per year. And that was a 10-year deal. We're coming on, we're in year nine of that, I believe. So um, so 400 and some million dollars each they pay per year to get the rights to NASCAR. And, um, you know, when you look at the rest of the sports landscape uh, and what goes into producing the racing uh, from a broadcast standpoint and from a competition standpoint, that, that to me is just not enough money. And when you look, when you compare it to the rest of the rights deals that these other sports are getting, there's a huge gap. Now, a lot of that is dictated by attention, fans' attention. How big is your audience? Um, NASCAR will never have an audience that's going to be bigger than pretty much any NFL game. However, what they give up in uh, single race viewership, they gain with calendar meaning that there's a NASCAR race on almost every damn weekend of the year. So they're starting, you know, roughly Valentine's Day and ending around Thanksgiving. And uh, I know some of the sponsors I used to work with, that was one of the benefits that they saw is being able to have a live sports platform that they could leverage almost year round. So I, I guess it depends on who you ask, but um, I, I would think, I would hope that the new number is going to be $1.5 billion per year. And, you know, maybe they, because they come up, 
maybe they they take less risk and instead of signing a 10-year deal they do a five-year deal and then every year after that is optional so i i I would like to see that because when you bring in more money uh, based on the current charter system the teams will end up getting more money and they will have to stop at least a little bit relying on sponsorship dollars uh, to fund their team so ideally you want to be in a scenario where the tv money and the money coming from the oem gets you to about whole and then everything else it becomes profit that would be the most ideal scenario i think that's what all the teams want Uh, i just don't know how many are going to get there Um, so that's that's kind of my two cents on that i saw uh, i don't know when it was announced but barstool sports they were looking to build a permanent sports book at Phoenix International Raceway. Uh, as of yesterday, news came out that that's on hold. Barstool is saying it's not the right time right now. Um, I am not a sports gambler. I, uh, I know a lot of people are, and um, I don't really have a ton of insight on this. However, anytime you have a brand like Barstool that has a ton of momentum, a lot of money, and a big young fan base, um, wanting to do anything with racing, whether it's with the sanctioning body, a team, or a track, and something comes out saying that that's on hold, eh, that's probably not the best news. Um, they didn't say why it was not good timing in the article that I read, uh, but that looks like it's going to be on hold for a little bit. Um, <laughs> another another little news nugget that came out is Michael Andretti is looking to get into NASCAR. Um uh, I forget the year, but this is definitely not the first time that uh, his name and NASCAR has been in the same sentence. I know he tried to get in many, many years ago, um, maybe the early to mid-2000s, mid-2000s, 8, 9, 10, somewhere right around there. Um, and I, I remember this because he was actually wanting to uh, buy the um, Statesville shop that uh, GMS is in now. Uh, which used to be the old Ray Everham shop. Um, uh, Andretti is currently in uh, a lot of stuff. He's in IndyCar. He's, I believe he's in Formula E. He's in the off-road electric race. He's in all sorts of stuff. And um, this is not uncommon uh, with a lot of teams and being able to diversify their racing portfolio. Um you know, obviously the biggest news with Michael right now outside of his IndyCar team is the is the his desire to get into Formula One. And it's been many, many months of him politicking, uh, getting the funding together, which it seems like he had the funding pretty early in this conversation. Uh, and then FIA came back and said, well, you need a manufacturer, an OEM to, to partner with. Cadillac steps up. So uh, from a paperwork standpoint, he's done everything that they have asked. And I believe um, the majority of the teams that are currently in F1 do not want another team coming in because you have to have, the per the rules, you have to have a two-car team coming in. And a lot of people think that that's really not going to do anything to help benefit or push forward the racing also in the FIA rules is there's room for two more teams to come in. So there's this weird, like, Michael has done everything he needs to do. He has the money. He uh, is in the middle of building the facility. 
um, they're ready to go. And according to the FIA rules, they have satisfied everything that they're asking for. And there's, there's space left. There's room for two more teams, and which is four more cars on the grid. So this is where the F or the Formula One politics, which I could imagine, maybe I can't imagine. The politics in NASCAR are pretty thick. Uh, I, I can't imagine what the politics are in Formula One. But um, I, I thought we were going to hear something about now of when the FIA was either going to grant him entry in or not. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, on top of Formula One, throw NASCAR into the mix of Michael Andretti wanting to get in there. Um, you know, I, I, I've heard that the funding is, is, um, is coming from, you know, a couple of his existing sponsors. Apparently, they have a huge appetite for racing, which is, you know, great for Michael Andretti. Um, you know, yes, you can enter NASCAR without a charter, but you're going to have to race your way in every single race, and you're not going to have guaranteed money. You're, you're basically going to have to race, uh, race your way for money uh, or race for your money um, every single weekend. So it's not the best economic model. Uh, but if he wants to get in, he can buy a charter. There are um, probably one to four charters that are out there with teams that more than likely will sell once the new TV deal gets announced. The last number I heard was th it started with a three. There was I think they're around thirty-ish million dollars, um, and the other holdup with the uh, NASCAR negotiations with between NASCAR and the teams, the RTA, is that uh, Jim France wants to potentially make those charters not permanent and, and be able to renegotiate them after a certain period of time forever. And the teams are totally against that. And I would side with the teams on this one. That's ridiculous. I think the, I think the charters need to be set in stone forever. Um, so the Chicago race is, is finally on the horizon. It's just around the corner. Uh, the Chicago race, the street course for a cup is going to be July 2nd, uh, 5.30 p.m., which is, which is a Sunday, I believe. Um, they are going to be racing around Grant Park. They've built a temporary circuit there. Um, they, uh, they, Chicago, and the immediate residents around that area that uh, go back and forth through that part of town have been yelling at the top of their lungs. There's a lot of political... Um, statements that have been made, positive and negative. Um, it's always difficult putting on a street race in a city uh, like Chicago. Um, you know, one of the benefits for Long Beach Grand Prix is where the track is set up. They can set that track up and almost probably leave it the whole year, and it doesn't really interfere with the traffic because it's like one whole block over, and it's not really in any main thoroughfares, even though it, it is in the heart of the city. And that is not the case in Chicago. This is they're they're going to end up um, blocking main thoroughfares once the race weekend starts. And then there's been a lot of obviously activity as they've been building the track over the past several weeks. So it'll be interesting to see the type of racing product that um, happens. Um, it, it it looks like for a street course it could be some decent speeds because it just looks like there's. You know, a lot of east-west racing, uh, tight, slow, tight turns, like square, like almost like two squares put together offset. So um, uh, I'm sure they're going to get some picturesque 
shots with the fountain and the buildings in the back or the lake in the back, depending on where the camera guy's sitting. So um, we'll see. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, obviously, the first time they're going to be doing that. So um, uh, I know one of the people that's kind of the, the main point person on the ground putting that event together. So for his, for his mental sake, I hope everything goes really well. Um, heading on to uh, the IMSA race uh, in Watkins Glen. Uh, it was the uh, Salins six hours at the Glen. Um, uh, beautiful racetrack in the Finger Lake region of upstate New York. Um, Watkins Glen, I looked earlier, uh, has a population of 1,900 people. So a uh, small town, uh, but really uh, um, rich racing history uh, dating back to like the 50s with Formula One. They used to actually race around the city streets. Um, and then that kind of spawned the creation of the actual physical track. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, the first the first year they had a race at the track was 1948. So it's it's been there for a while. Um, a lot of elevation changes. Um, I still think one of the unique things, and from a, a braking standpoint, is turn one is you go from full speed down to heavy braking downhill into a right. So from a braking standpoint, that's going to eat your brakes up pretty good. Um, then you head back up through the S's up the hill. Um, the IMSA course races the boot. Uh, the NASCAR guys do not. So that's an extra piece of racetrack that basically looks like a boot from the aerial shots. Um, uh, I think the the lap times were like a minute 46, 7, 8, 9, depending on what class you were in. Uh, I think minute high minute 30s if you were in the um, GTP cars. Um, there were 57 cars on track. And for the first, I don't know, third of the race, it felt like there were 57 cars on the track because it just seemed like no matter what shot TV went to, there was just a thick line of cars. And um, you had the LMP2, LMP3, GTD, GTE. So you had you had four classes that are somewhat in the same ballpark speed. And then you have the GTP cars that are trying to pass everyone like all the time. So I, I know that's the usual setup with IMSA, but with the amount of cars on this track, it just seemed overly congested for a fair amount of time uh, during the race. So that I know adds another layer of um, difficulty for these drivers to navigate through. Um, right off the bat, they uh, so they the uh, the GTP cars uh, started in a separate pack ahead of everybody else. They threw the green flag. Uh, one of the Rahal BMWs, I think they said when he was just shifting, um, the uh, rear tires broke loose. He spun, uh, didn't hit anyone else, but hit the wall pretty good. And he tried to loop it around and get to, there's a little access road that would get his car off the track. And he tried spinning it around to get to that access road. And his nose was entirely cracked and the front suspension was totally falling apart or was in pieces. And he, he basically ended up on the inside line of that little short shoot before you go up the S's. And... <laughs> And, and, and he was there, he, he couldn't move it, but he stayed in the car. And then TV cut to the GT class and the flagman throwing the green flag. And so you had another you know 20 or 30 cars charging into turn one. 
And I know the IMSA announcers said it, and then the NBC announcers really said it. They're like, this is not smart. What are they doing? And even Townsend Bell, who's pretty good on a microphone, he's like, I'm speechless that they're having this thing go green because you have a disabled car almost in the middle of the racetrack uh, that the drivers approaching cannot see until they're right there. And they did not go f a red. They did not go full course yellow. They did a local yellow. And then they backed off. But um, that was a questionable um, uh, refereeing <laughs> to let those cars go. Uh, nobody was hurt uh, uh, other than the BMW being torn up from hitting the wall initially. Uh, no other cars got torn up. Um, for us, for uh, Corvette Racing, uh, it was a pretty clean race. Um, you know, uh, we did our alternative broadcast um, for six hours. It was awesome. It went really well. Um, it was a little bit easier. It, it felt easier because we didn't, you know, filling 24 hours of anything is difficult. So um, we had six hours to play with. We had some guests. Um, it seemed a little, to be a little bit more fluid and less downtime. Uh, which was some of the feedback that we got uh, from the first time. Um, we had uh, Doug Louth, who was our uh, chief technical officer, who uh, used to travel with the Corvette team uh, and is is very involved with the GT3 program. Uh, we had him on screen for hour, hour and a half, and then he came back on towards the uh, last part of the race. Uh, we had Doug Feehan on um for an hour and a half two hours he, he he was having wireless problems from the track but he kept calling back in um and i, I know maybe most of you know who doug feehan is but that man is a national treasure <laughs> uh, really enjoyed talking with him and his insight to corvette racing is amazing and he is a great storyteller and his filters fairly thin which i appreciate uh so that that was really good to have him on there um, and then we also um, had timing and scoring on our feed being shown through our stream. Um, we did uh, make a call to IMSA to let them know that, and they, they gave us the thumbs up over the phone, so that was good uh, because the, the track owns that feed, so we wanted to make sure that we were not trying to do anything shady. But um, I think that the broadcast was good that we did um, our car you know, again, having one car in this is always difficult, one out of 57. Um, and then having to deal with the BOP adjustments that we had to deal with, um, having a clean race and making podium is solid. Um, and, you know, again, there are a handful of comments on social media saying, oh, it seems like the Corvette doesn't have pace. Well, yeah, it doesn't have pace because we're carrying like nine dead bodies in the back trunk. And they, you know, uh, I, I think we, we also had a... Um, intake restrictor applied to us for the BOP. So when you're carrying extra weight and or having an engine that's choked down, you're not going to have pace. So uh, in those situations, which is, it seems like it's been a handful of times this year on the IMSA side, you really rely back on execution of a clean race, um, doing the easy things that may look easy, uh, being clean with those, not screwing up the easy things. So clean pit stops, clean driver exchanges, um, staying out of the way of the faster cars and then watching out for when everyone else is spinning out and obviously not getting collected in those. Um, being very thoughtful about how our racecraft plays out 
is how you make up that time when your performance is not there based on the, the rules that they have. So um, towards the end, uh, we did lead several laps with Antonio Garcia. And we were, we were, I wouldn't say flat out, we were conserving a little bit on the fuel side as well. Um, but we were doing what we could. We had a, the Lexus right behind us, and then the Ferrari was right behind the Lexus. So the last several laps, um, probably more than several laps, uh, our class was all nosed up. Uh, the top three are running, you know, nose to tail, which always you know makes for great racing. Uh, we got a lot of TV time towards the end because the other classes were pretty much spread out and 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 we're gonna finish how they were running. So um, the race was actually in the the GTD class. Um, uh, through TV and through the telemetry, and Luke was listening to the radio. Um, uh, basically, the Lexus was conserving fuel and tires for a bit. And then uh, the Lexus got the call on the radio that you're free to go, uh, turn it up and go. And they did. Um, and they passed us. And then I believe on the same turn, the Ferrari apparently got the call as well. And uh, the Ferrari followed the Lexus. So it was Lexus, Ferrari, Chevy on the podium in the GTD class. Um, but again, it was a solid performance given the hand we were dealt. And um, on to the next one. Um, and then the off-track um, uh, items to mention, uh, it, for Pratt & Miller as a whole, this past Friday was a, was a um, benchmark day in the history of the company. So um, Brandon, who is the VP of motorsports within Pratt & Miller, he was in New York. And we uh, joined the GM press conference with uh, Christy Bagney, who is the program manager for Corvette Racing on the GM side, and then Mark Marini, um, who is uh, who oversees the Corvette Racing program on the competition side. They were um, doing a press conference uh, Friday late morning, and this was a culmination of at least a year, if not a little bit more, of the shift in how Pratt & Miller is going to go to market. Um, and I think most people listening to this and also the Corvette racing fan base knows that uh, Pratt & Miller was the executional arm for General Motors for those yellow Corvettes for 23, 25 years. And um, great relationship with General Motors. So going forward, um, GM, we are still going to have a relationship with GM and uh, uh, however, we are um, going to become an, a more or less independent racing team. And so we're going to come from behind the scenes of being behind the scenes of GM to being in front of the scenes and being our own racing entity. And so the Corvette racing um, uh, program going forward in 2024, uh, the name of the team is going to be Corvette Racing by Pratt Miller Motorsports. And that is going to be within IMSA. And then the, the, the holistic name of the team is Pratt Miller Motorsports. So um, our future looks bright. Uh, our future you know, could look diverse. Uh, we are going to be sports car racing for the foreseeable future. Um, obviously, there are rule changes within sports car racing and the GT class. So going into 2024, we will be racing. This was also part of the announcement. We will be racing two 
of the Chevrolet Corvette Z06 GT3Rs, which is a long name. And uh, so we'll be fielding two of those cars in IMSA with pro drivers. Um, and I believe General Motors is going to make some announcements coming up here of uh, other teams that will be customers uh, of General Motors and um, race Corvettes. Um, uh, it, it is definitely a chapter closing in the Pratt & Miller Motorsports Handbook. Uh, but if you look globally, there will be more Corvettes racing around the world and in different series. I believe there's there's going to be Corvettes in four different series over the next couple of years. So there's going to be more Corvettes out there. However, we are going to still maintain the dual yellow car um, livery, which everyone knows and loves. And, um, you know, after being here for now almost seven months, um, the, the Corvette yellow is very very iconic and it's almost like the pinstripes on the yankee uniforms the the greatness g on the side of the packers helmet so this is something that people look for uh, during the alternative broadcast we had people saying that they they watched those yellow corvettes as kids uh, and now they're adults and have kids of their own so this is a part of their childhood so um, it is a really impactful and meaningful uh, livery um, so we are going to uh, the, the design of it, we haven't really gotten to that part yet, but uh, I, I, I assure you uh, it's, they're going to be yellow Corvettes. Um, I thought it was interesting that the, the GTP class winner from IMSA was uh, Porsche Penske, but then after post-race inspection, um, they had uh, a skid block infringement, which I believe measured thinner than what the minimum tolerance is and uh again uh luke is not here i forgot to i forgot to mention this ahead of time luke is not here he's on vacation geez who the hell takes vacation in the summer with their family come on um but this would be a question for him but i believe there are four skid blocks underneath the car um and I would think if your blocks are thinner, it's either two things. One, it's just a, it's an error in measurement, and you're trying to get those to be as thin as possible without breaking the rules uh, in order to get your car to sit down as low as possible under a load. Or you could be innovating and making those as thin as possible so they maybe pass visual inspection, but uh, having them super thin, again, being able to have that car squat down as much as possible um, to help with um, aerodynamic um, benefits. So basically they measured too thin. Um, they pulled the wind from them and they gave it to the Ray Hall, the other Ray Hall BMW, which took second place on race day. So by default, since they were second place, they were now awarded the win. So uh, nobody likes to win that way, but a win is a win. So um, that's that was the latest. I, I believe Penske's going to appeal it. And as of today, Tuesday, um, uh, I haven't heard anything, but I, I, I heard they're going to appeal it. So this might play out for another week or so uh, when they go to motorsports court and figure it out. Um, appeals have been turnover in the past across all series. Um, not a lot, but it, it can happen. So we'll see how it goes from there. Um, and so, yeah, 
uh, another solo podcast. Um, uh, I will chat with Luke, but we will more than likely take the next Tuesday off because that is the 4th of July. And um, but then we will be digesting and watching uh, all of the racing between now and then and then have a uh, action packed podcast for you um, the Tuesday after. Um, but uh, we really appreciate everyone supporting our channels. Um, Pratt Miller Motorsports. If you search that on your platform of choice, you will find our account and we would love it if you would follow us and share with your friends. Uh, we still have more news to break between now and the end of the year. So uh, we will be sending out some teasers when we have all that stuff ready to go. Um, but this, uh, even though it was a big announcement this past Friday, um, we really want to stand on the gas and uh, make some noise in the motorsport space. And I think this is the perfect team to do that. So um, really looking forward to it and have a great rest of the week. And we will talk with you later. Thank you.